A crisis is a situation where you are forced to ask deep questions about yourself. And you start to clarify your values and your identity. And when you do, you transcend external motivation. You start to become internally motivated. And when you do that, you're taking your best self and enacting it into the collective group. And everything changes. I'm the principal or the owner. You're the agent. We form a contract for 10 units of your time. I'm going to give you 10 units of wealth. You now work for me. As long as I'm there to watch you or to have a system that measures you, it works. The moment I turn my back, you underperform the contract. That's the principal agent problem. Universal economics. What do you do when your people underperform the contract? Well, you have to institute a better control system. What do they do when you institute it? They use their creativity to circumvent it. So you build a more powerful control system. It's a vicious cycle that can't end, and you blame them when you're part of the problem. This is an important conversation to listen to the whole way through. First, ask yourself, what's the highest purpose of your organization? Likely you have an answer, something you've been told or something you've absorbed through your experience over the years. But maybe the greater truth is that we need to discover our organization's purpose with our people. When we move to higher purpose, we form a contract with each other that transcends normal management theory, the need for greater control. Dr. Robert Quinn and Howard Teibel pick up where they left off in episode 222 of the podcast and now focus on what it looks like to give up control to create something most of us only imagine, an engaged, connected, and purpose-focused organization where leaders put their egos aside and allow their people to step up. If you're inspired by this conversation, share it with your colleagues or write us at info at tybelinc.com. That's info at T-E-I-B-E-L-I-N-C.com. And now, Howard Tybel and Robert Quinn. the difference between people that take on what you're talking about and those who do not take it on? If you examine the best superintendents in the country or the best principals in the country, you will find exactly the same thing. They're operating at a higher level of moral and spiritual development, and they're, they're able to transcend their egos, and they're not living in fear. And so because the good of the class or the good of the school or the district is higher importance than them, they're constantly creating a better version of themselves and a better version of the organization. And it holds in every industry. It's probably a combination of some of these things are innate for some more than others. But I do believe that 
these skills and ways of being can be learned. You just got to decide if that's who you want to be in the world. Yeah, the research is pretty clear. There's two ways to move from conventional thinking to that leadership mindset. The first one is very relevant to you and I today. The first one's crisis. Most people who make the jump make the jump because of crisis. So Jerry Anderson was transformed by 2008. Today's crisis is a golden opportunity to get up out of the fetal position and come to exactly what we're talking about, right? The second path is disciplined reflection, having a purpose in every single day being disciplined reflection about who I am, who my people are, and where we are in relation to that purpose. If you step back and look at those two answers, they, they come together. A crisis is a situation where you are forced to ask deep questions about yourself. And you start to clarify your values and your identity. And when you do, you transcend external motivation. You start to become internally motivated. And when you do that, you're taking your best self and enacting it into the collective group. And everything changes. Yeah, this is a nice way to pivot to your book, The Economics of Higher Purpose, Eight Counterintuitive Steps for Creating a Purpose-Driven Organization. Why are they counterintuitive? You have a gift for great questions, my friend. What makes them counterintuitive is they violate the assumptions we all make every day. The first six chapters of that book talk about economics. The first assumptions of economics is man or woman is a rational, self-interested actor. Resources are scarce. Conflict is inevitable. We organize in hierarchies. We filter information. We underperform our potential, and so on. The list goes on and on and on. Those are very gloomy assumptions. Well, why do we make them? Because those social scientists that state those assumptions study you and they study me. And this is how you and I behave most of the time. If I'm driving down the highway and someone cuts me off, I get angry, right? Why? That person just violated a contract. Contract, transaction, exchange, that's the theory that I have right here, just below my chin. It's an unconscious theory that's operating every moment. I'm looking at the fairness of the exchanges. And that theory drives all of normal discourse. It becomes the culture of every organization. When we turn to higher purpose, the assumptions change. Now, the way I usually talk about this is if you take that set of assumptions I just stated and put them in the middle of the normal curve, then you have the path to conventional order. That's management theory. That's economic theory. To the left of the normal curve is what happens when all that breaks down. And what we have is conflict, problem solving, and so on. And that's where most professionals spend their day. 
on the left side of that curve trying to solve problems, try to restore order, return to the past. That leaves a huge blank space on the right side of the curve. Now, on the right side of that curve is social excellence. We're not in hierarchical order. We're performing at the highest imaginable level. At DTE, when they were doing so well, they were, they were violating all the normal assumptions. Economics would say that's impossible. Sociologists say it's impossible. All the disciplines would say it's impossible. And the average person in the street believes it's impossible. Right? It's not until Jerry Anderson lives through that crisis and he sees this incredible performance that he says, oh, if, if my people in the real world just did this, it must be possible. Now, the question is, how do I behave as a leader so it becomes possible all the time? That's asking the question that changes everything. And so on that right side of the curve, uh, it says people can transcend ego. People can make contributions to the common good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So those eight steps are the steps for bringing that about. Those are not intuitive steps. So like the first one is envision the engaged, positive workforce. We envision people who don't want to work. I have to put controls in place, I as a boss, because people don't want to work. That's my vision. And so what does an engaged workforce look like? One way to interpret that is people are lazy. I think, just to clarify this, that what you're really saying is that the, the way you transcend this, the way you shift this, it's, it's not about ensuring that people are doing what they're supposed to be doing, but getting them to care as deeply or maybe more than me in why we're doing this. <laughs> you are a genius. <laughs> now, I can hear people getting defensive with this idea, but what you're really saying is not that they don't want to work, it's that they don't feel connected to why they're doing this work in the first place. That's exactly right. In the very first paper we wrote was a mathematical model of an organization using conventional assumptions. And then we changed one aspect of the model. And that is we moved from self-interest to higher purpose. Now, what we were testing is one of the fundamental outlooks of all economic thinking, and that is called the principal agent problem. I'm the principal or the owner. You're the agent. We form a contract for 10 units of your time. I'm going to give you 10 units of wealth. You now work for me. As long as I'm there to watch you or to have a system that measures you, it works. The moment I turn my back, you underperform the contract. That's the principal agent problem. Universal economics. What do you do when your people underperform the contract? Well, you have to institute a better control system. What do they do when you institute it? They use their creativity to circumvent it. So you build a more powerful control system. It becomes a vicious cycle. Exactly. It's a vicious cycle to can't end, and you blame them when you're part of the problem, right? Now, what that mathematical model said is the moment you move to higher purpose, the agents become principals. They become owners. Those great public school teachers are not teaching because of what the principal does. They own everything they do. 
There's nothing external about it at all. It's about creating a system in which everybody's pursuing the common good. The system is synergistic. The senior leadership and the senior team are probably the most connected to the mission and vision purpose goals. And then as you sprinkle to the organization, it becomes more about what they have to do versus why they're doing it. What they would argue is we don't have the time. We don't know how to make what you're saying a priority uh, because it will risk us being able to get the work done that needs to get done. So I see this as a dilemma and I'm curious how you've experienced in working with leaders to shift that. The rhetoric is always, we're busy. Right. Right. We have a task focus has to get done. The truth is those people at the top do not know what the purpose is. That's the first missing piece. That's, they do not know. I mean, I've had endless conversations with people from every kind of organization. And it's very embarrassing when I ask them simple questions because they don't know what the purpose, what the highest purpose of that organization is. They automatically make assumptions about uh, profit or whatever it is, you know, number of tests passed. And they don't have an answer to what is the highest purpose. That's why the second step, discover the purpose, which is also counterintuitive, is so important. And again, an education story that I think you could appreciate. We had a woman at the University of Michigan, and she was made dean of the education school. And she says, I hadn't even read a book about leadership. How could I do this? But she had been a spectacular fourth grade teacher before she got her PhD. And so she asked, how can I treat the school as if it was my fourth grade class? What would I do? Well, one of the first things she did was ask, what was the purpose of the school? Now, how do you answer that? Well, she interviewed every faculty member, every staff member, and she said, what do you think the purpose is? And she said, 90% of what they told me was garbage, but 10% was gold. So I would take one gold nugget and go to the next interview, and I go to the next interview. And gradually, I would start stringing these gems together. And by the end of a very long process, I discovered three elements of a higher purpose for the ed school. She said, okay, this is what we're going to do. Now, there were faculty who immediately left. They felt excluded. That seems like a bad thing. But all over the world... There were faculty who suddenly wanted to come to the University of Michigan. One of the ways you know that you're moving in the right direction is some people say, I don't want to be part of that. That's right. That's exactly right. The interesting thing is this inexperienced leader within a very short time became the darling of the administration, the outstanding dean on campus, because she went out and discovered the purpose. Most managers from the highest levels, look at me when I talk about that with a blank face. And then the next question is, what does it mean to make that purpose authentic? And this is what you were talking about a minute ago. That is, if this purpose, if I can get to one in the first place, and it's hard work to get there, but if I get there, is it the arbiter of every decision? Now, there's a a firm in Ohio, I was visiting them one day, and there was this mid-level woman, and she said to this group, 
I just came from a meeting with my boss. And he said, we're going to do X. And I said, no, we're not. Now, every head in that meeting turned and looked at her. She said, I said to him, that's not our purpose. Our purpose is this, and that's not consistent. And the boss said, oh, you're right. When the purpose is the arbiter of every decision, everyone's empowered. Everyone's aligned. That's when all the human resource is available, which almost never happens, right? You've solved the principal agent problem. We got to be willing to give up that we have the answers and that we're discovering the answers. That, that is such a critical shift and it takes patience. People don't want to discover the answer. They want the answer. Exactly. We're working with a handful of leaders who recognize that discovering the answer is the way. And that to me is the difference. Like people who are prepared to step into a discovery conversation versus people who want to be able to say the right thing so they can then get their people back into what you talked about before, which is the principal agent way of working. Now, if you go to the very first thing you just said, is I go to the boss and say, what is our purpose? Now, just freeze that for a second. When I say that to you, I'm putting you into the expert role. Everybody expects it of you. So if you don't have an answer, you must be a failed leader, right? Right. Because in that moment, an authentic response could be, let me think about it for a minute. Or after I think about it, you know, I don't know. Exactly. Right now, I can tell you, I, getting leaders' attention around anything besides what are we going to do is almost impossible. Some are. But when you're in a crisis, when the, when the patient's in the emergency room, they're about to have surgery. There's a mobilization around that. And at some point, they're going to come out of surgery and they're going to be in intensive care uh, as an organization. And then they're going to go from being in intensive care to recovery and rehabilitation. But I'm curious if you're discovering, boy, this is the right time to have these conversations around uh, being purpose-driven. Seems to me this is coming. It's, it's not here today. They're so busy, you can't get their attention. That's right. They're solving a problem. How do you create culture? There's a lot of ways to create it, but the primary way is how I behave when the chips are down. How I behave in the middle of a crisis, right? My job is to be creating purpose every minute of every day. And when crisis is happening, I have my greatest opportunity to create purpose. When Jerry Anderson went to that year of intense education, he went out to USAA Insurance to meet with Joe Robles, who was on his board. They went to the call centers, and Jerry couldn't believe his eyes. He says, I have call centers. They don't look like this. These people are engaged. They're happy. They're productive. He said, I don't understand. And Robles said, the highest purpose of a leader is to connect the people to the purpose. Nobody believes that sentence. And if I'm in the middle of a crisis, I do exactly what you just said. I'm solving the emergencies. Don't bother me with this extraneous stuff, right? And so that narrow, what my friend Anjan calls single variable maximizer mentality, <laughs> does 
is keeps you exactly in the culture you've already or always had because you're solving that emergency problem. Your job is to solve the problem while you lead. And it's a golden opportunity and most people will not take it. I got reminded of something I already know. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever been through anything like this in your lifetime? I believe this is the biggest event since World War II. And I was born in 1946 when it ended. So 9-11 is a shadow of this. Uh, And other than 9-11, we've had very few events that even come close. So this is the biggest event of your life and my life and everybody else's life. Yeah, I think the last thing I want to get back to is a certain kind of um, hope here, but hope in the context of like the right kind of hope, which is how do we take care of people through this? I mean, there is incredible hardship that we are seeing everywhere. Some of us are personally experiencing. Just yesterday, I was talking to people who lost their job, pay cut by 50%, although their mood is relatively good in that they realize they're not alone, right? This is something we're going through together. And I've been talking, when time, even when times are good, it, it, this pales in comparison, but I talk about like how people go through change and they go from contentment to denial to confusion to renewal. And that I've used examples like in denial, like you'd get a new boss, right? Oh my God, I don't want to work for that new person. Think about how much that pales in comparison to this collective sense of shock. Like in a certain way, we're in a certain kind of shock. So it seems to me that right now, we are, we are dealing with uh, a certain kind of grief and even anticipatory grief as a country, as a world. And this is not an area that leaders are typically trained to support their people around. I talked to a faculty member recently, and he said that he had some faculty member that when he's on Zoom with them, they're crying. We're in this space that most of us are not trained for. It seems to be the one thing that I want to hear your perspective we need to do better than ever is we need to bring a certain kind of empathy and willingness to listen and hear and not try to fix and allow people to be where they are while at the same time we're giving them direction about what we expect of them. It's very interesting that 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 you heard that story about teachers crying because yesterday I was with somebody who's in the education field and reported exactly the same thing. These teachers, principals talking to teachers and teachers are crying on the phone. Enormous sense of loss there. And the question is, how do you nurture someone at a time of loss? And the answer is, you love them. You listen with empathy. You don't have answers. You don't tell them what to do. You try to understand where they are, what they're feeling. And if you do, in that state of love, your creative capacities open in real time. And you know what to do. You have to trust that process. You know, I have this model called the fundamental state of leadership, and it's, it's four questions as opposed to uh, telling people what to do. And the four questions are, what result 
do I seek to create? That comes from Robert Fritz. It's a transformational question. People say, oh, it's a simple question. I ask that all, all the time. No, we don't. The question we ask all the time is, how do I get what I want? That's very different than what result do I want to create? The moment you answer that question, you empower yourself and others. The second question is, am I internally directed? Am I living at this moment with integrity? Am I living my deepest values? The answer is usually no. I'm a hypocrite. I have all these values. My behavior looks like this. Where is my integrity? Am I authentically pursuing this purpose because it's aligned with my values. Question three, am I other-focused? Am I hearing the deepest voice of the people around me? Now, that means I have to have trust and openness. And the beauty of a crisis is it automatically creates that openness. Those teachers are crying on the phone. It's a golden opportunity for me to keep my mouth shut to listen with love. The fourth question is, am I externally open? Can I co-create the emerging future with these other people? That means we're equals in uncertainty, pursuing a purpose, and interacting our way into a newly emerging culture. And that's an enormous source of faith and hope. This is a time, if I was talking to a school principal I'd be saying, yeah, you should be worrying about how to get the lessons done online. That's a practical problem for right now. But that's your secondary issue, not your primary issue. Your issue is, where are we going? What do we want to create? When we get back to that building, how are we going to be better than we've ever been before? In order for me to imagine that, I need to talk to every teacher and listen to them cry. I need to understand what it is they're feeling. And then I need to ask them to teach me what they need and what we need collectively. Well, that's very different than being an expert with the answers. This is a perfect thing for us to end on. <laughs> Ending on love. Yeah, right? that's right. I mean, that's we're right. we're now living with our families in a way that we haven't. I'm hearing so many stories where people are connecting with their families in ways that in, in some ways, they see this as there's a certain gift that's showing up, and to bring that gift back when we find ourselves with the people we work with. Thank you so much for for being in this conversation with me. It, I'm inspired about how to even look more authentically at what does it mean to live my own life with greater purpose. Let's find the time to do this again. Fantastic. Great talking to you. 